Hello and welcome to the Rules of Investing, brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, David Thornton. Today's guest is Blake Henricks, Portfolio Manager at Firetrail Investments, a high conviction manager of Aussie and global equities. Firetrail live by the motto, every company has a price. But don't let that fool you into thinking Firetrail are a value-only manager. Theirs is a style agnostic approach, which gives them the flexibility to play at every point in the cycle. In today's episode, Blake discusses the health of Aussie balance sheets, what we can expect from earnings season, some of the mispriced companies he's found in today's market, and the takeover action that's about to envelop the resources sector. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're already a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Blake Hendricks, let's do it. Welcome to Rules of Investing. Hey David, thanks for having me. Okay, so Blake, how does the market look right now from the purview of a high conviction equities portfolio manager? Uh, sometimes people say it's really uncertain now. and it's a, it's a pretty good sales technique because, you know, people want certainty and, and they'll cling on to it. But in truth, it's always as uncertain as ever. You know, today is as uncertain as it was yesterday. So when I think about the opportunity set, it, it's always changing. But the way, I guess, at Firetrail we look at companies is it's micro-based, so we're interested in market structures, competition, and those things tend to trend for three-plus years. So there's a couple of areas we're interested in. I'm sure we'll get into those later. But you know, in terms of opportunity set, there's as many opportunities now as, as generally we've seen. On the one hand, balance sheets are looking very healthy. Um, but then, on the other hand, Business insolvencies um, are taking off. I saw just this month in May, uh, 900 businesses went insolvent. How do those two things net out? You know, on the insolvency and, and just where we are, you know, it, it's easy to write headlines based on rate of change. Um, but when we look at, you know, delinquencies in general, they're still, you know, below where they were. When we look at US economy, it's still adding jobs. So there's like debate about how, how much slower those job ads are, but it's still adding jobs. And so you can make, you know, pretty easy sweeping statements saying, well, gee, big tech's getting rid of this many people or small tech's getting rid of all of their people. But you've got to just step back and look at the data. And the data says, you know, jobs are still being added into the US economy, which is, you know, the market leader. And so it's just not as bad as um, everyone would have thought. Okay, so what do you think we're going to see from earnings season? Will it surprise to the upside, to the downside, or or somewhere in the middle? Oh, I mean, companies are pretty good at keeping market up to date now. It's always about the trading update. I mean, what, what we're hearing on the ground is that, you know, that good space in retail is very, very tough. You know, we speak to a lot of people and they're telling us it got really bad in Feb, got worse in March, got worse in April, and it's just been really, really tough. And you've seen all the trading updates come out. Baby Bunting, good example, you know, 20% declines in sales, I think, when you back solve it for, for that start of June. So there's a lot of people hurting out there in that space. But the Australian, the, the ASX 200 is a lot of companies. 
let's talk about banks. I mean, everyone thought we'd be seeing really bad, bad debts by now. We're still not. Provisions are quite high. Um, the reason we're not attracted to the banks at the moment is because the competitive dynamics aren't really changing, or the market structure isn't changing. And I think that's when you when you look at when you're making an investment. One way to really protect yourself is to invest in industries where the market structure is changing or has changed, so there's less participants. I tried to buy some business shirts the other day. I'm a bit of a tight ass, so I'm waiting for 30 June. I think I'm going to go and buy some business shirts, and the one I used to buy has gone out of business. And so now there's one one name in the game, and I'm thinking I'm going to get really deep discounts here. And I think they're thinking, well, our biggest competitor's gone. You know, why, why would we discount? So we've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but you know, when we're looking at this reporting season, we're much more interested in the companies we own. How is the investment thesis going against what we thought, and how, how is that playing out? That's that's more important to be honest than the macro because the macro is ever changing. It's it's going to be based on where rates go. It's going to be based on where inflation goes, and you know all those trade offs there. It's, it's pretty hard to make money out of the macro in my my experience. All right, let's move on to the nuts and bolts of how Firetrail go about investing. You invest by the motto "Every company has a price." What does that mean in practice, and how price is looking right now? So. Every company has a price is, is you know, something we stand behind because if you look at stocks through time, all different types of companies can outperform, right? We can look at geared companies, undergeared companies. We can look at value, growth, quality, small, large. In the right circumstance, all different types of companies can outperform. Um, so especially in a market like Australia, which is a small market in the scheme of things, you know, we've got 200 stocks in the ASX 200 Globally, I think there's 58,000 listed securities. So I get why in a, in a global context you'd say, well, we're going to really narrow it down. But in the Australian context, I think you really need to keep your options open. What does it mean in practice? Well, you know, if, if I said to you, David, would you rather invest in a, a beachside mansion or, or a shack in the outback? The average person would probably say, well, I'll have the beachside mansion. But the key word was what's the better investment, not what's the better asset. And so, you know, my view of what separates really good investors from okay investors is the ability to try and work out what you're paying for that asset because it's very easy to determine the good assets. Beachside mansions are great. CSL is a great company. You know, those are pretty easy calls to make, but the nuance is what price are you willing to pay? And so when we say every company has a price, that's what we mean. We want to look at all the assets and try and work out what we're willing to pay for them. Now, what, what does that mean in practice? Well, in practice, it means something like a CSL has traded between 30 and 35 times one-year forward earnings. We make some rate adjustments, but, you know, even within, it's still probably in that realm because it has delivered, you know, low teens growth over time. Today, we look at it and we say, well, one year out, it's probably trading in the high 20s. And so that starts to look, look attractive. And then you might say, well, why is it trading there? Well, they've disappointed on gross margin as the hangover from COVID has been with them longer than the market thought. Um, there's also some concerns about a, a new competitor product from Argenix and then that could you know, eat up to, let's call it 5 to 10% of earnings growth over the next few years. And so there's a few reasons why it's trading there. And then so we say, well, here's the quality of the asset. What are we willing to pay? Um, and and that's, that's what it means in practice. So it's not just what you're buying, it's, it's how much... You're paying for it. Um, so if we look at the market today, 
there's there's a few sectors that look attractive to us, like energy, uh, insurance as well, um, do look very attractive when we look back on historical norms, um, and the, and the healthcare sector as well is one where, you know, people are chasing defensives, at almost any price. So it's almost like that. Hey, that's a defensive. I'm going to buy it. Well, yeah, okay, but if you're going to start paying 24, 25, 26 times for some of these defensive assets, telcos, supermarkets, whatever it is, you know, you've got to be pretty comfortable that that earnings growth is going to support that because if all of a sudden the market says, hey, you know what, economic growth might be okay, we're actually at the bottom of a mini cycle, the money will leave those companies pretty quickly. And we look at global comps and, and they trade at pretty significant discounts to what some of those classic defensive assets are trading at. At what point does every company has a price turn into a value trap? To use your metaphor, when is that shack in the outback, you know, cheap because it's situated on the dark side of the moon and no one wants to live there? <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. Well, ideally, you, you buy the outback shack knowing that uh, there's going to be a new community built nearby <laughs> or a big highway and you're going to have to be compulsorily acquired. Um but it, it's a great question because every company has a price, has a value value sort of mentality, although it can be applied to value and growth stocks. But where you lose money on value traps is when things are worse than the market expects. And so, you know, one thing we strongly believe in at Firetrail is you want to buy undervalued companies that don't materially disappoint the market. And the reason we say this, and we've empirically tested it, is if you buy undervalued assets over time, you'll make money. But if you buy undervalued assets that meet or beat expectations, you make a lot of money. And so, you know, to buy these companies, in our view, you don't need big earnings upgrades. But if the earnings get worse, you're in a value trap. And then you've got to make a decision about whether this is something that's temporary, you know, let's call it three to six months, maybe a year, or is it something that actually this this business is in a much worse position than I thought. This shack, uh, you know, is in a much worse position than we thought. And, you know, we're just wrong. And so when, when you have that, you are in a value trap and the best thing to do is, is head to the exit. So before you get there, are there some telltale signs that the market has misread a company, either to the upside or downside that, you know, that pique your interest? Yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to find the value ones, you know, the, the, the ones that everyone hates um, because there's usually bad news earnings downgrades, management change, uh, the media hates them, investors hate them, there's usually uh, votes against at the most recent AGM. You know, all those things, you know, hey, things aren't going well here. And so you can go and have a look at that kind of company and say, has the market pushed too far? On the other side, the growth style ones, uh, you know, a company we're invested in, a company called ResMed. Uh, we really love the competitive dynamics in that sector because it's really a three-player market with ResMed, um, Philips and Fisher and Paykel. Philips has had a major product recall. That's taken them out of the market. They've lost all their good salespeople. The market's view is this is a one-year issue. Uh, it's been going on for two years already. Our view is this is going to last for quite a while. And there's a lot of uh, historical norms we can look at. Um, we've seen Fisher and Paykel, they had a recall. Oh, sorry, pardon me, Cochlear had a recall and uh, they lost market share for about eight years. Great example of where those kind of things happen. So how do you find out about those? Well, you've got to do the work for those. You've got to meet a lot of companies. You know, the Firetrail team, we're meeting you know, over a, or having over a thousand company visits or industry expert meetings every year. So to find those kind of ones, 
you're not going to find it screening on dividend yields. You know, so everyone wants to build good screens and those kind of things, and I think that builds a good discipline on the value side. But how do you find those good growth companies? I mean, you can start by looking for high ROE, but you need to be out there talking to people, reading, um, listening, and, and doing whatever you can to get an edge. So you touched on it before. Um, style bias is another thing you guys try and avoid. Mm. But if you're not attached to a certain style, what's your process? Yeah, well, uh, let me just quickly break that down because the style bias is something we've got a very strong view on, which is that if you attach yourself to just value stocks or just growth stocks or just quality stocks, you can be tied to underperformance, which can last eight eight years, as an example. And we found examples just just being value, just being growth, just being quality in the past two decades has resulted in periods of seven to eight year underperformance. So sticking to just those styles we think can tie you into things out, outside of your control and underperformance outside of your control. So instead, be open. Um, what, what it means for when we invest is we, we just want, we want to buy those undervalued companies that aren't going to disappoint on a three-year view. And, and perhaps that frames it up well because a three-year view um, – we believe gives you time to buy when things aren't going well, but see improvement on a three-year basis. You know, a classic value manager would look out five years and say, yeah, I know it's bad today, but at some point it's going to get better. We prefer some line of sight or some thesis into why it's going to get better. Um, a, a typical, let's say, a momentum investor will look out maybe one year. Is it going to get better tomorrow or not? And you know, increasingly when I look at some of the the global markets out there, particularly the US with quarterly reporting, it's just you're always on that treadmill. And so, you know, increasingly looking out three years is a competitive advantage for patient fund managers. Um, but I think if you look out more than that, you know, five years plus, you, you can risk not getting paid for that insight. You want to get paid. If you've got some good work, you, you want to make sure you get paid. Okay, so you, you wear multiple hats bit of growth, a bit of value, a bit of quality, et cetera. Um, what hat are you wearing the most right now? If I go back to 2020, it was heavily cyclicals. You know, in the middle of COVID, we really moved the portfolio aggressively to, to get long cyclicals. For City today, it, it's more balanced. We're seeing tremendous value in some of the cyclical sectors. Um, and this sort of plays into a theme Um that we strongly believe in, which is around old assets being worth a lot more than the market thinks. And so what, what that's about is we're, we're under the way on the energy transition and what that's going to mean is a lot of CapEx. Uh, now, if you talk to companies like Wally, one of the biggest engineering firms in the world, I think 40 or 50,000 engineers, they say they've never seen conditions this good in 25 years. Right? So that's a company who's doing the front end of the energy transition saying things are pretty good. They're saying we're trying to lose work, we're increasing prices, and our win rates are going up. So there's already a lot of demand to build new stuff. And this new stuff is getting much more expensive very fast, in our view. Um, we talk to companies out there and they're seeing enormous inflation in um, pre-feasibility before what we call final investment decision. There's just inflation across all parts of the chain. So whether it's engineers, whether it's supply chain, uh, engineering, red tape, the whole thing. And so assets that are operating today with long life are the most attractive. And, and, you know, on that cyclical side, that's definitely where we're positioned. Uh, the other side is on the healthcare. We talked about ResMed before, the CSLs, um, you know, that they're attractive areas as well. And, and the other one is insurance. 
you know, this insurance cycle we're going through has been one of the strongest in a long, long time. And typically you see the really big outperformance on insurance companies once premium rates actually slow. So while the narrative is premium rates are going up, this is great, that, that is true, but you typically see the earnings take off once inflation calms down and those premium rates earn through the P&L. And so the, the leading indicator is premium rates. The earnings indicator, when I think you'll get some of these quant buying, is when you start to see earnings upgrades, and that's much closer to the end of the um, rate cycle. Just before we leave uh, your process, it sounds like you know, you, you've got all these different lenses through which to view these companies. Do you risk being a jack of all trades and a master of none? One of the beliefs we've got in the, in the, process, in the approach we have at Firetrail is to run teams of portfolio managers. Because um, investing is a lonely place. I mean, when you're winning, there's nothing better. But when you're wrong, it's a very lonely island to be on. And, and I'm sure many listeners out here, you know, most may be on their own. And, you know, I know what it's like to be like you and, and have it going the wrong way and, and second-guessing yourself. So we, we have a team of portfolio managers. On the High Conviction Fund, we run three. And we're all pretty different. Um, you know, we've all got similar experience. Patty's the most experienced. Um, but... We've all got different beliefs and different. Yeah, I think what you find over time is everyone has different um, biases. I'm quite optimistic. Um, Scott and our team, I won't call him pessimistic. Real, let's call him realistic. <laughs> that's what he likes to be called. And 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 that's what allows us to be so flexible in our approach because you've always got someone checking you, saying, "Hey, here's the other side of this coin. Have you thought about this? Hey, you've been really quiet. Uh, are you worried this is going wrong?" Because that's typically what happens, right? When you see something going wrong, you just start thinking, <laughs> okay, let's, you know, let me just think about this a bit harder. And then you, sh- you sure that shack in the outback yeah. was a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's lonely. When you're wrong, it's, there's, there's nothing worse. But having someone there to say, hey, you know, we're on the same team, but have you considered this is very, very powerful. And so we insist on having teams of portfolio managers because having someone check you um, stops you just loading all in and, um, and being really wrong. Okay, so we've touched on it all through the chat so far, um, but let's dig in a bit deeper. How's the portfolio positioned right now? Characterise it for me. Yeah, I mean, we we think about heavily stock-specific risks. So, you know, at the moment we own around 26 companies in the portfolio. Uh, Energy is the largest bet in the the portfolio, and I talked earlier about, you know, these old assets have more value. If if we just dive into energy quickly... The, the oil market is 102 million barrels a day. That's probably what it will be for 2023. Now, we would have been sitting here having debates, depending on what side you were on, David, at the time, saying, you know, it'll never get back to 99. That's the peak. We're currently sitting here at 102. So demand has been much more robust than the market would have thought. But where it gets really interesting is on the supply side because – the supply side has not been invested in sufficiently in our view. You know, to put it in perspective, we monitor um, probably 50 of the largest listed CapEx spenders in the energy space that extends to chemicals and refining and the like. They spent $450 billion in 2014. This year they'll probably spend about $250 billion. And it's been on an ongoing slide from 2014 to today. That's down 44%. So you've got oil demand hitting all-time highs, but at the same time, the supply side has been way under-invested in. And then you compound that in with Worley saying, 
all our engineers are busy. We've never been busier. We're trying to put the price up. So what it means is where does that next barrel come from? That's the question you've always got to ask because oil, the oil market doesn't typically adopt a cost curve. It, it adopts an incentive price curve because the cost, you know, if you look at some of the majors, they, they tr- $6 per barrel cost. The oil price would have to go very low to see that shut in. So you look at, well, okay, where's that next barrel coming from? Well, US, when we look at that, there's a bit more growth there, but it's not anything like it used to be. You know, we might see half to one million barrels a day growth from that market. OPEC's flexing up and down. But if you look at the market, greater than 50% of global oil, of the 102, greater than 50% is not OPEC and it's not US shale. And when we look at the prices some of those players need to earn a reasonable IRR, those IRR hurdles are going up in our view because of shareholder pressure, because of cost blowouts. Um, you know, we think that price needs to be greater than 75, greater than $80 a barrel. It could even be higher. And so today, if you look at Santos, um, which is the largest position in the high conviction portfolio today, it's pricing in around $60 a barrel long term. Now, we've talked about oil there, but what's really interesting is that Santos is greater than 80% gas when you look at its reserves. Now, some of that gas, most of that gas is sold linked to the oil market. So we, we look at the oil price, but gas is heavily in demand, in our opinion, as the energy transition continues and the debate matures. Uh, we, we believe that gas will have a growth path for at least the next decade as um, electricity markets try to firm up the intermittency of solar and wind and you know batteries just won't be able to meet the demand in the short term. So that, that would be a company where it's pricing in very low oil prices, $60 long term. Um, it's in gas. And they've also got a very credible decarbonisation uh, pro- profile. The market's heavily sceptical, in my opinion, on carbon capture and storage. Uh, we've pulled out a lot of work. We've looked at uh, projects in Norway like Sleipner, which ran successfully for 20 years. Gorgon, uh, the carbon capture and storage project, has been um, plagued with issues, but it's still successfully captured carbon dioxide. And so it, it's one where we think it's got a credible path to decarbonisation. It's in gas where we see a, a long-term profile and it's very undervalued. And so you know that would be an area in the portfolio where we're positioned in. Um, some of the other areas we've talked about, the insurance and the healthcare as well. So what are your highest conviction energy players? Yeah, I mean, I think Santos um, is uh, both in position and, and, and our view on that. Um, we also were in origin um, and, and, you know, luckily benefited from a, uh, from a takeover bid from Brookfield. Um, and, and the other one would be Worley. And, you know, what's really interesting about Worley is that competitive dynamic I talked about, something that's really important to to us as investors because you can't control the macro, but you can see these micro trends playing out. And the micro trend there is that contractors who compete with Worley, like Floor and Wood Group, have had major capex overruns. Like we've looked at the cash flows of those businesses over the last five years. Floor is $15 billion of revenue. They've had negative cash flow, cumulative over five years, on $15 billion of revenue. Like this is per annum. It's, it's huge. Wood Group the same. Um, they've been losing money. And so now what you're in a situation, you're in a situation where you're seeing increased activity, less players, because floor and wood are still around, but others have gone by the wayside. And that's going to mean not only higher revenue, but higher margin. And uh, something we don't think the market's fully factoring in. This supply constrained story in energy, Mm. that can be extrapolated to resources in general, right? We're seeing a lot of takeover action 
in the commodities space. What opportunities are you seeing uh, in other commodities? Yeah, great, great question. And, and maybe one area that is always a hot topic is on the energy transition is who are the winners? You know, the decarbonisation minerals. And so I'd, I'd probably call out the big three. I'd, I'd identify lithium, copper and rare earths. And, you know, please don't send me any hate mail if I haven't mentioned your chosen decarbonisation commodity. I've even <laughs> heard, met coal, heard met coal being mentioned because we need more steel to build more wind farms. And, uh, you know, met coal is actually the best decarbonisation metal. But bear with me. Let's let's stick with lithium, copper and, and rare earths. And, and in a high conviction fund, we've really chosen to play it through copper and rare earths, and in particular rare earths. And the reason we've done that is lithium has the hyper growth, but it does also have supply, which is coming down the pipe. And, and we've seen that supply come to market. Yes, there's been some delays, but it can come pretty quickly. And so... I mean, there's heaps of lithium, right? The problem's nickel for these batteries, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's... I mean, it's everything's going to be a problem. There's going to be substitutions in and out, sodium ion instead of lithium. Mm. You know, there's... We, we could go down a, a real rabbit hole here. But our, our view is the supply side of lithium is easier to solve than it is for rare earths, as an example. In, in the rare earth space, you know, Linus has a world-class resource in Mount Weld. They have the processing plant, which is operating in, w, in um, Malaysia. They've just started commissioning the WA plant. And when we look at who's next, who's the next Linus, we really start to struggle to see how some of these projects get up unless they start to materially lift their forward prices you know, just to go through a few of them. I mean, um, Hastings had a capex update recently. I think the capex was up, you know, close to fifty percent. Arafura, similar. The the challenge for us when we look at these projects is the the grades and the size of the deposits don't support some pretty large fixed cost investment that needs to go on. And so, increasingly, I guess we believe the market will be a, almost a tolling market, where Linus will be a big player potentially a lucre as well. Um, you know, they're being funded by the government. But there's just nothing like Mount World out there. And we're seeing some of these smaller guys really starting to to struggle as the as the rubber hits the road. So, you know, old assets are very valuable. Those that are producing with long life, you know, and, and our view is they're only going to get more valuable over time. And it speaks to the fact we're in a buy rather than build phase. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean... You know, the, the High Conviction Fund benefit from, from Origin, uh, you know, Brookfield coming and taking it over. And, and one of the key parts of that, in our view, was gas peakers, gas-fired peaking stations. Very hard to build one now with private capital. You look at BHP, I mean, they've got this huge portfolio of growth options and they chose to pay a massive control premium for Oz Minerals. Um, if you sit here today, uh, Newmont buying Newcrest, uh, that was a, and still is a portfolio position, they're saying, well, hey, we've got all these growth portfolios, uh, growth projects in our portfolio. We're looking at them. We're hitting F9 on the on the economics and, geez, they're getting worse and yet we've got these companies where the market's worried about cost inflation in the short term or whatever it is, but, geez, we can pay a premium and still make good money out of this. So our, our view is as people are refreshing their project pipelines, as we move into a more pro-growth phase in the market on resources, they're saying, hey, maybe buying some of these companies that are trading on you know, single-digit multiples with very limited debt is the easiest way to get things up. Uh, Instech Pivot, great example. That's a company we own. 
um, and have been increasing recently. They sold a, a um, Louisiana plant called Wagaman to a, a near competitor called CF Industries. And you go and listen to what CF Industries say, and they say, well, we could have built this plant, but it would have taken us five years, probably would have gone over budget. We get access to these cash flows today. Um, this is this is a great deal for for CF industry shareholders. So yeah, I think that build versus buy, it's very clear to us which way that's heading, and, and that's absolutely towards the buy phase. And if some of these companies don't re-rate, Santos would be a good example. You know, We, we do think there's a strong chance that someone's going to come in, pay 30% premium, and think they've got a steal. And getting a bit philosophical here, but does that also speak to the importance of stock picking? Definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, stock picking, very competitive. You know, I, I play competitive basketball and, you know, I thought that was competitive and then I came to investing and, wow, you know, <laughs> anyone with a computer is a player, there's huge prizes on offer. You know, it, it's very, very competitive. And so at Fytrail, we're under no illusion that, it's a very competitive market and we've got to stay very sharp with our skills and work very hard to just try and have an edge. Um, stock picking is important though and, and I strongly believe it because some of the indexing I see, some of the indexing is good. You know, I think it's good for mum and dad investors, people who want to set and forget and do those kind of things. I think it serves an incredibly important purpose which is low-cost diversified investing for many people to achieve their financial goals. Um, but equally, you know, sometimes it does get dangerous when people chase themes uh, with no regard for price. And this probably goes back to every company has a price. Just because it's a big weight in the index doesn't mean it's a good investment. And so, you know, that's that's the other side to that coin and, and why we do believe in, in active stock management and, and, you know, invest a lot in the funds that we manage ourselves. Right. Time for our three favourite questions, Blake. Question one, what's one thing investors are getting wrong about today's market? I think there's an overhyping of AI, artificial intelligence. Um, and, and But I'll be very specific in what I say because the demand for the hardware, the demand for the data centres is quite clear. I think, you know, we've seen the data, it's coming thick and fast. But I'm increasingly seeing Australian companies talking to how they're using AI every day. And AI doesn't create high returns. If you think, if you go back to what drives returns in an industry, it's competition. So if one bank starts using AI, all the banks will probably start using AI and any benefit will be distributed probably back to consumers or more likely back to big tech who are the facilitators. So yeah, we've got a global team and they're saying, hey, we, we think big guys are going to win. So the Microsofts, you know, we've been hearing uh, Copilot, which is going to be a new product that's going to launch into Office, has been getting rave reviews save a lot of people time. But that surplus, that savings of time, will probably get paid to the Microsofts of the world. The, the one winners, though, outside of big tech, in our opinion, are going to be those with individual data that is um, unique to them. They're still going to have to do the work to pull it all out and see what it means. But, you know, the zeros of the world, you know, that first-party data, whereas we just don't see it in the banks because once you've got a loan book and you see 10% of the market, you'll pretty much know... All there is to know. Um, and if there is anything to be found, the big guys, the, the big tech will probably find it and uh, sell it to everyone. So we actually don't think it's going to change returns for, what about, for most industries. Sorry, what about first mover advantage? That That's a good point because some companies are just better than others. They're more focused. Uh, they run it better. 
And Commonwealth Bank would be a classic example where because they've stayed very focused and invested a lot early on and continued that investment, they have stayed ahead of the game and you can see it through their return on equity, which is superior to their peers. So I would expect winners to win more. Um, absolutely. And it's so easy as an investor, and I don't know if you've done it too, but you say, oh, I can't believe they didn't do that. Why wasn't that done before? And you look at your own business and, and sometimes you think, oh, geez, okay, well, we could improve that as well. Um, so th- there is definitely going to be first mover advantage, first mover advantage, and some of those leaders will get further away. But if big tech is anything to go by, you know, you look at uh, online search, it pretty quickly became ubiquitous and then it was whoever had the most money got the highest on the search rankings. So they'll find a way to see what others are doing, use it, monetize it. That, that's, my, that's my view today, but it's emerging. I just think some of the companies that I look at are... Uh, Question two, could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in the past? What happened and what did you learn from it? Oh, well, it's, it's both a loss and a win. Um, going into COVID, Qantas was one of our largest positions. Um, and the thesis was that the market was really underestimating how strong their domestic franchise was and how much Virgin were hurting. So, geez, we took a big bath. I think it went from five bucks, six bucks, something down to two dollars. And uh, you know, we, we we bought a lot more. We doubled our position at at, at the bottom. You know, within within a couple of days, either side, including some of those days. And, you know, it rebounded very hard and, you know, just recently it was around $6.50. So it went from 2 to $6.50. And, and what did we learn? You've got to back yourself in those dislocations. You've got to be ready to know, hey, how am I going to react? You can never fully predict it, but you've got to back yourself because those massive dislocations don't happen too often. You know, we've had the GFC, we've had COVID. You know, th- those were big money-making opportunities the other thing was the thinking that went into it because the thinking was very clear was if the borders stay shut for a long time, Virgin's definitely not going to make it. And so you probably have a monopoly carrier. Now, that then we started thinking, well, maybe it'll get regulated by the government and the government will own it and all those kind of things. But we felt like the risk was heavily skewed to the upside at some of those points because if you start losing competitors, again, industry dynamics improve – and that's when things get a lot better. So we well, had the, a national carrier that really is too important to fail. Yes, that had just taken a massive, massive haircut. Yeah. So yeah. why why not double down, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, easy, yeah. Easier said than done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I remember feeling quite sick um, <laughs> talking about it, doing it, and for the next couple of days. And uh, but no, I look back now and think, why didn't we buy more? But no, I still remember at the time we pushed it to the limit. Of what our uh, what our intestines could take, as a proportion, how much did you buy compared to what you had to begin with? We probably didn't get it back there. It was, it was you know, let's call it a five percent position. It got down to one and a half, I think, pretty quickly. You know, probably would yeah, probably would have been about that one and a half, and, and I think we bought it back to about three. Okay, and then. I mean, if we had have held the whole thing and never sold, uh, you know, it'd be a much bigger part. But yeah, you know, we we started letting some go on the way up. Um, and then if we sit here today, you know, the market's very, you know, I think, understands very strongly how strong that domestic franchise is. It's probably still not all in the price, but 
a lot of it's back there now. So um, we've got to you know find those best opportunities. Question three: If markets were to close tomorrow for five years, and you could only own shares in one company, this is very hypothetical. <laughs> uh, which company would that be, and why? Yeah, as we sit here today, I'm going to say Domino's. Domino's. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a business that's been proven over twenty years. You know, it's a model that makes sense. Not many franchise models make sense for everyone, for both the franchisee and the franchisor. But Domino's has a proven model that works, which is small format footprints, high volume mentality, be close to customers to lower delivery costs. And what's happened is they've had the world's biggest inflation jolt, um, which kicked off really around Russia, but even a bit before that. And, you know, today the market's view is, well, franchisees aren't going to roll out stores anymore because they're not very profitable. Food costs have really hammered them. Electricity costs have hammered them. Labor costs have hammered them. But if I sit back and think, gee, well, Domino's are doing it tough, but I wonder how the other pizza shops are going with longer distances, higher labor costs, worse buying power on food. I'd have to think some of these things subside. And in five years' time, you look back and think, gee, buying a, a proven business over 20 years that's just undergone you know, its biggest jolt in that time, You know, probably since the meat pie pizza debacle of 2006. You'll have to look that one up. But, um, you know, it's been very, very tough and I don't know if it's getting better right now or in the next three months, but I reckon in five years' time we look back and think buying Domino's when everyone hated it, when the franchisees were at their worst, that's probably not a bad time to buy a good business like that. Blake, this has been a great chat. You've left me hungry for more. <laughs> <laughs> or just hungry at least. <laughs> or just hungry. Um, we'd love to have you back on soon. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, David. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, give it a like and don't forget to subscribe to livewiremarkets.com for more free content like this. I'll see you next week.